How many of you have heard the expression that some people are so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good? Have you heard that expression before? So heavenly minded, no earthly good. A number of hands went up. Does anybody know what passage of scripture that idea comes from? Yeah, it doesn't. Totally not in the Bible anywhere. Uh, in fact, the Bible actually teaches us the exact opposite of that. The Bible teaches us that as Christians, we are actually called to be heavenly minded. We're called to have a mentality that is not just fixated on the here and now, that is not just looking at our present circumstances, but is actually considering and living in light of eternity and eternal and heavenly realities. And the Bible seems to suggest that to the degree that that we get better at doing that, living heavenly minded, we're going to actually become more useful on earth. We're going to become more valuable in the here and now. I like the way that C.S. Lewis, the author of the Chronicles of Narnia, put it. C.S. Lewis said, if you read history, and he had read history extensively, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. So, so those who seem to be the most heavenly minded, the most fixated on God and, and his love and his kingdom were those who actually throughout the church's history have had the greatest impact on the here and the now. So as Christians, then we ought to develop and cultivate a heavenly mindset. And that's exactly what we find in today's text in Colossians chapter 3. Now, before we look closely at this passage, let's just remind ourselves where this passage is located in this entire letter. We're in chapter 3 now of this letter written to the Colossians. Back in chapter 2, verse 12, we learned that our baptism, when we get baptized as Christians, our baptism portrays our new reality in Christ. Namely, that in Christ... We were buried with him in death, and we were raised with him to life. So when we put our faith in Jesus, which again is portrayed in baptism, we are entering into a new reality where we have been buried with Jesus and we have been raised with Jesus. Last week, Pastor Justin in his sermon helped unpack some of the implications for us of what it might mean for us to be buried with Christ. If you go back to chapter 2, verse 20, Paul writes this, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? So in the, the passage right before what we're talking about today, Paul was then unpacking some of those implications of being dead with Christ or dying with Christ. And what Paul was arguing there was, listen, if you're in Christ now and you've been buried with him and you have died with him, then you are no longer ruled by this world. You're dead to this world. You're dead to the power structures of this world. You're dead to the rituals and the practices that belong to this present age. Instead, as we're going to learn today, you and I who are in Christ... We are governed and controlled by him. We belong to the new age that Christ ushered in 2,000 years ago. And so this morning, we're going to begin now to unpack some of what it means 
to have been raised with Christ. That's exactly how the text begins. Look at verse 1. Paul writes this, If then you have been raised with Christ. Now some translations say, Since you have been raised with Christ, which is very helpful. The word if can suggest to us doubt, as if Paul is sort of uncertain about whether these Colossians had in fact been raised with Christ. But that's not what Paul is saying at all. It would sort of be like a soccer coach who gathers the team together and has a huddle and says, hey, if you're a part of this team, I need you to be at every single practice. The soccer coach isn't questioning whether or not you're a part of the team. What he's saying is, since you're a part of this team, I need you to be at every single practice. And Paul is saying the same exact thing here. Since you belong to Jesus, since you have been raised, raised with Christ. Now, what does that expression mean? What does Paul mean when he says that we've been raised with Christ? I mean, we know what the resurrection of Jesus meant for Jesus. Jesus was physically dead and buried, and he was raised, right? But Paul says that you and I have been raised with Christ. What does he have in mind there? Well, obviously, he's not saying that the exact same thing that happened to Jesus has happened to us yet, because we are all still alive. If you go back to chapter 2, verse 12, where we first find this idea of being buried with Christ and raised with Christ, Paul goes on in the very next verse, chapter 2, verse 13, to talk about those of us who have been raised with Christ, God has made us alive together with him. So what Paul has in mind when he talks about us being raised with Christ is the idea that you and I, by faith in Christ, have been made spiritually alive by God. He has breathed spiritual life into us. Jesus calls it being born again. We've been made alive. This is new spiritual life that you and I have entered into from the moment that we confess Jesus as Lord. In Romans, Paul puts it slightly different. But look at how similar this verse is. This is Romans 6, 4. Paul writes, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. That's what Paul has in mind when he talks about us being raised with Christ. It's this idea of newness of life, this new spiritual life that you and I are experiencing and living out. So what does that new life look like? What does it look like to be a person who is in Christ and is therefore spiritually alive or is experiencing newness of life? Well, that's what we're going to look at all throughout chapter 3. We can call this new life the resurrection life. That's the title of my sermon today. The resurrection life, part one. So I wonder what Ryan's title will be next Sunday. So here's what we learn. New life in Christ, number one, we're going to see this today, it reorients our desires. New life in Christ, or this resurrection life, reorients our desires. Number two, it renews our minds. 
And then next week, we're going to see how it also reforms our behavior. And then finally, at the end of this chapter and going into chapter 4, you see that it even restructures our relationships. This new resurrection life, this newness of life that God calls us into when we're born again spiritually, it totally transforms us. Really, it transforms us from the inside out. It is a total renovation of the person. You know, you can talk about doing some renovation on a home, and sometimes you could be referring to like changing out light fixtures and scraping the ceilings and painting the walls. Or you could be referring to going in and literally tearing everything down to the studs and just rebuilding it from the ground up. That, that's more of a picture of what happens in the Christian life. When we come to Jesus, God doesn't just slightly adjust a couple things in us. It's not just behavior modification where God gets us to stop cussing like we used to and stop getting drunk like we used to. When we come to Christ, when we experience newness of life, when God makes us who were once spiritually dead alive, it is a total renovation. It's a transformation. Of course, Paul calls it in 2 Corinthians 5.17, he calls us a new creation. God radically transforms everything about us. And Paul masterfully unpacks this in Colossians chapter 3. And so we see here that it begins at the level of our desires. New life in Christ, number one, reorients our desires. Where am I getting this? Well, Paul writes this. Since we've been born again, since we've been raised to newness of life, he writes this, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seek the things that are above where Christ is. The command to seek implies desire. We seek after things that we desire, things that we want. If I were to say that I am seeking after love, what do I mean by that? I, I mean that I'm desiring love. I want love. That's the thing I'm pursuing or seeking after. If I was playing hide-and-seek with my sons, when I'm going after them and I'm seeking them, that means that I want to find them. That's the name of the game. That's what I'm trying to accomplish. So implicit in the command to seek something is the idea that there's desire there, that we're going after this. What are we to seek after? Well, he says the things that are above, where Christ is. We are to seek heavenly things and heavenly realities, right? Isn't that where Jesus is right now? Right now, Jesus, we know, is in heaven. After Jesus was crucified and he was buried and he rose from the dead, 40 days later, he ascended back to heaven and that's where he is now. And that's where he'll continue to be until he returns at the end of this age. Ephesians 1, 20 and 21 explains this. It says this, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So Jesus right now is in heaven and he is ruling and reigning over all things. And we 
who belong to Jesus are called, were commanded here in Colossians 3, to seek Him and to seek heavenly things. Seek the things above where Jesus is. Now this is a complete reorientation of our desires that takes place when we, beca- when we become Christians. Because before we said yes to Jesus, before we were born again, before the Holy Spirit took up residence in our hearts, you and I were not thinking about eternal matters. You and I were not considering life beyond the grave. All we could do was pay attention to this life. The best that all of us could do was live for right now. Try to get as much satisfaction, enjoyment, meaning, purpose, fulfillment out of right now as we possibly could. We had to live for the moment. But all that's changed now. Now, we're no longer bound to just this present evil age. Now we belong to the age to come. Now we know that Jesus is in heaven and he's ruling and reigning not only over this age, but over the age to come. Now we know there is eternity. Now we know that heaven is real. This starts to change everything about the way that we think and the things that matter most to us. Whereas we used to only desire earthly love, now we desire God's love. Whereas we used to only desire earthly treasure, now we desire heavenly treasure. Whereas we used to only desire earthly comfort, now we long for eternal comfort. Whereas we used to desire only earthly approval, now we desire God's approval. Our desires have been fundamentally reshaped through our union with Jesus the Christ. Everything has shifted. Our hearts are no no longer only seeking things that are in this life. But they're ultimately seeking what lies beyond. We're seeking Christ. And we're seeking things that are above. I know no better description of this than the words of the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3. Verses 8 through 15. Here was a man who is heavenly minded. Here was a man who was just seeking what really mattered. He writes this, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. But Paul's saying, listen, everything in my being is straining toward that upward call of God in Christ Jesus. It was a complete reorientation 
of his desires. Well, this brings us to the second aspect of what this newness of life looks like in verse 2. New life in Christ not only reorients our desires, it also renews our minds. Verse 2 goes on by saying, set your minds on things that are above, not on things on earth. You can see now how the Bible teaches the very opposite of the quote I began with. That quote that says that some people are so heavenly minded they're of no earthly good. Christians are to be so heavenly minded. We are to set our minds on things above and we're to do so to such a degree that we become of earthly good. Now, the way that this works is like this. Those who are consumed merely with this earth, with the things that are going on right here and right now, are generally focused on themselves. It's my happiness. It's my gratification. It's my reputation. But those who are not just considering this, but they are also taking into account God and his existence, and the fact that he's in charge of everything, and the fact that one day we have to give an account to him, guess what? They live differently. And they actually become others-oriented because they know that the Christian life is not just love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, but also to love your neighbor as yourself. And so those who are truly taking this seriously and are living for God and living for His kingdom are going to be people who actually care about others, who serve others, who evangelize the lost and share the good news of the gospel with them, who serve the body of Christ and serve the community around them. Now, it's worth noting that point two is the way that we fulfill point one. You can't seek unless you set. What I mean by that is, in order for us to get really, really good at seeking things above, desiring things above, it begins with meditating on things above. It begins with setting our minds on things above. It begins with us constantly thinking about who Jesus is and all that Christ has done for us. That stirs our desire and causes us to be a people who seek things above where Christ is. Now the word set in verse 2 is in the present tense. Which means that it is a continual action. So Paul here is saying, keep setting your minds on things that are above. As one translation puts it, keep thinking about things above. This means that this is something that you and I have to be intentional about. This is something that you and I have to work at. It's a daily setting and setting and keeping our minds on things above. Guess what? Our default is to think about things below. Our default is to worry about the bills, to look at the work week we've got lined up, to figure out how to get my kids to listen better, to get their schooling situated, to take care of all of these other things. Our default is to be concerned with and even consumed with earthly things, relationships, work, our GPA, politics, hobbies, food, clothing, and so on and so forth. And family, there's a place for all of that. 
We live in this world. We have to concern ourselves with those things. But the key is we cannot be consumed with those things. And in order for us to avoid being consumed by those things, we have to become intentional. We have to work at setting our minds every single day on things above. Our minds need to be stretched toward a fuller picture of reality because everything we see right now is not all that there is. There is not just this present age. There is an age to come. Our life in Christ is a life that is lived between two worlds. Paul writes in Philippians 3.20, But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, these two commands, to seek and to set, remind us of our responsibility in the Christian life. You and I are not to be passive in the Christian life. We can't just sit back and go, well, God will change me and cause me to do all of the things that God is asking me to do, and then just sit back and do nothing. The Bible teaches that certainly God is the initiator of all that God is calling us to do, but you and I play a part in it. And the reason for that is because you and I are not robots. We have to cooperate with what God is asking us to do in our lives. God gives us faith, but guess what? We have to exercise it. God takes out our heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh, but we have to seek things that are above. God transforms us by the renewing of our minds, but we have to set our minds on things above. God makes us a new creation, but we have to put on the new self, as we'll see next week. So there's, there's a cooperation that happens here. There's God's part in the Christian life, and there's the Christian's part in the Christian life. And if we think we're just going to sit back and do nothing and then default toward holiness, you've got another thing coming. It's not going to happen. Paul has already made this point clear when discussing Christian ministry at the end of chapter 1. Here's what he put in chapter 1, verse 29. Paul writes, For this I toil. So who's working here? Who's working here? Paul, for this I toil, but then what does he say? Struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. So there's Paul's work in ministry, but all the while Paul knows even while I'm working underneath that, God's working through me and in me. In the context of our salvation in the Christian life in general, Paul says a similar thing in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. He writes to the Philippians, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So who's working there? Who's working there? Yeah, we are, right? Work out your own salvation, he writes, with fear and trembling. And then he can't even finish that sentence without adding this. He says, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Paul believed in the sovereignty of God. 
Paul believed that we don't save ourselves. God saves us. God makes us alive together in Christ. Even our faith is a gift from God. But Paul did not ever hesitate to say, even though that's all true, you're not a robot. You have to respond. You have to do the things that God is calling you to do. Yes, he'll give you the strength. Yes, he'll give you the power. But you just can't sit back passively. Or you will never grow up into this new resurrected life. This new life that God has called you into. And so family, we have to be a people who are seeking things above who are setting our minds on things above. We've got to be active in that, proactive in that. We can't just sit back. So how do we do that? What does it practically look like for us to be a people who are setting, who are continually setting our minds on things above where Christ is? I'm going to give you nine brief things that will help with this. They're going to come quickly. Number one, read and memorize Scripture. The Bible will orient your heart and your mind upward. As you make that a daily practice, like the Psalms talk about in Psalm 1, meditating on the Word of God day and night, as you do that, you will find that you are thinking heavenly thoughts, that you are being mentally consumed with Jesus and his kingdom. Number two, spend time in prayer. Prayer is our way of communicating to God, talking with God, connecting with God. And so if we want to be a people whose hearts are in tune with God's heart, if we want to be a people who are constantly thinking about God, we should be a people who are constantly talking to God. As we speak with God, our mind is set on Him and His priorities. Number three, worshiping. Now, obviously, this word has a much broader meaning than singing what we call worship songs, but that's how I'm using it today. This is a great practice in the Christian life. Coming to church and singing songs of praise to the Lord is wonderful because we are singing theology and we're reminding ourselves of beliefs. You can do that seven days a week. You can listen to and worship along to wonderful hymns and songs that will stir your heart and your mind. Number four, fellowship with other believers. Fellowship with other believers. The, the Proverbs talk about how, for us, just like iron sharpens iron, one believer sharpens another. When you're around other Christians, other people who worship the same God you do, who, who have the same values as you do, who are also seeking things that are above, guess what? You will also be encouraged to do those things. You're going to find yourself encouraged in your faith. You're going to find yourself challenged, and you're going to find yourself being pushed in the right direction. Christian friends help keep your, your heart and your mind Set on things that are above. Number five, serving in the church. By serving in the church, you are participating in the business of the kingdom. And so as you are serving 
within the body of Christ and you're ministering to other believers, it shouldn't surprise you that your own heart and mind become more and more in tune with the kingdom. Number six, sharing your faith. We call this evangelism. When we share our own faith with other people, we are being reminded of the very truths that we believe. We're being reminded of who God is. We're being reminded of what God has done to save sinful people, broken people just like us. And so as we share our faith with others, we ourselves are having our own thoughts and mindset and attitude shifted upward. Number seven, giving. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 21, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. But Jesus is teaching something important there, that our heart follows our cash. That our attention follows our investment. If, if you invested a million dollars in a startup company, don't you think you'd be interested in how the company's doing and the going-ons of that company? You wouldn't just invest that million dollars and just go on with your life for the next five years, totally oblivious to what's going on with that company. You would really, really care because you've got a lot invested in that. Our, our hearts are attached to the things that we invest in. And so part of the reason why God calls us to generously give to the work of ministry is, yes, in part so that ministry continues, but also because God knows how our heart works. And God knows that as we invest in the work of the kingdom, our own hearts are going to become more and more consumed with the kingdom. Number eight, I'm calling this silence. You can call this unplugging. We live in a constant sea of noise, and busyness, and distraction. These have literally changed the game. And people are constantly being fed information. We're on sensory overload. And one of the historic practices of the church is silence and solitude. And we need to become a people who get better at just unplugging and just getting away from all the noise so that we can actually sit and organize our thoughts, examine our hearts and our souls and see what's going on and make space to be present with God and to be mindful of the Lord. Number nine, Sabbath. Sabbath. One day out of every seven, you take to rest to recharge, and to worship. Now, many modern Christians are, are, um, are, are not very good at practicing Sabbath. And I think some of that is an overreaction, knowing that Sabbath, literally, in the ways that the Jews observed it, was an Old Testament regulation. But the principle of Sabbath is embedded in creation. And God created us to not work seven days. We're not machines. We need to rest. We need to regroup. And we need to create space to be mindful of the Lord and to worship the Lord. So those are nine things. There's more that could be added to that list. But as we implement these sorts of practices in our lives, which 
are called spiritual disciplines. These are things that help us to cultivate a heavenly mindset, to not be ruled by the things of this world. Now let's look at verse 3. In verse 3, Paul writes this. He says, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That word for means because. So Paul's about to give us some reasons why you and I should be oriented toward heaven. He's going to ultimately give us three reasons. The first two are here in verse 3, and the third one is found in verse 4. But the first one is this. We should be oriented heavenly because, as Paul writes, we are dead to this present age. Paul says, for you have died. The old Daniel, who could only live for the here and the now, is dead. That Daniel does not exist anymore. Because Daniel has been born again. Daniel has been transferred from the kingdom or the domain of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Daniel and every single one of us who have put our faith in Jesus, can and should be able to say with the Apostle Paul in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And again, in Romans 6.6, we know that our old self was crucified with him, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So Paul's saying, listen, you need to, you need to bring your, your desires and your mindset into alignment with the new age that you're a part of. Because you have died to this present age. You died with Christ the moment you put your faith in him. The second reason to be heavenly oriented is this. Also in verse 3, because we are hidden with Christ in God. We are hidden with Christ in God. Now this blows your mind. But just as Jesus is right now seated in the heavenly places, which we already talked about, every single one of us who are in Christ by faith, are also seated with him. Here's what Ephesians goes on to say. Chapter 2, verses 4 through 6. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. When God made you alive in Christ, the moment that you believed in Jesus, you were seated with Jesus in the heavenly places. Now, some of us are going, I feel like I'm seated in the church. And you are. But what this means is that by virtue of our union with Christ, there are spiritual realities that are true of us right now that are not clearly visible, that are hidden with Christ. Our spiritual life is hidden in the sense that it has not yet been fully revealed. 
We are already seated with him in heavenly places, and yet we aren't there physically yet. Now, Paul uses the same word, this, this word hidden, back in chapter 1, verse 26, where he explained that the gospel itself had been hidden for ages and generations, but now it's been revealed to the saints. So just like the gospel before Jesus arrived, just like the gospel itself was not completely revealed or fully understood until Christ came, there are spiritual realities that are true right now about you and about me that are not clearly or fully revealed or understood. There are things that are true of us right now that our friends, our family members, our co-workers, our classmates just can't see with their physical eyes. We are, listen to me, completely righteous in Christ. That is true. That is objectively true if you're a Christian here today. And yet nobody that you know, and especially the people you know very well, are looking at you and saying, you're perfectly righteous, you got no room to grow. It's true, but it's hidden. Our names right now are written in the book of life in heaven. That's true. Objectively, that is true about you if you're a Christian here today. But we don't get to see the, the book yet. We can't look at it with our eyes. Right now, we are in Christ, and Christ is in us via the Holy Spirit right now. So what I'm saying to you is that God is in you right now if you're a Christian. People can't see that. You might be able to see evidence of that, but they can't see that. We have an inheritance right now that is waiting for us in heaven. It's there. And the second we get there, it's all there waiting for us. But guess what? We just can't see it yet. It's not revealed yet. Christ has already gone to prepare a place for us. It's already been built. Your room is already reserved in heaven. But guess what? You don't see it quite yet. No one can see all of these things right now. But they are absolutely true of each and every one of us. Therefore, how could we not be a people who are seeking this, what is ultimately true and ultimately real about us, namely that we belong to Jesus and that we will be with God in heaven? Okay, the third and final reason here, found in the last verse. Paul writes, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him and glory. The third reason why Paul thinks we have to seek the things that are above, set our minds on the things above, is the fact that Christ is coming for us. The Bible's crystal clear that there will be a day, it'll be just like every other day, and all of a sudden Jesus Christ will return, and he'll return in glory and power, and he will come back to judge the living, and the dead. And when he does, every single Christian throughout all of history will be united with him, joined with him. Verse 4 says that we will appear with him in glory. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 talks about this moment. 
In verse 16, Paul writes, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. So those who have already died in Christ are going to rise first when Jesus returns. And then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And then here's the best part, he says, and so we will always be with the Lord. Christ is going to return, and when he does, guess what? We get to be with him, and we will be with him forevermore. We will always be with the Lord. Because Jesus is coming back, and because we are going to be with him in glory, with perfect, sinless bodies that are free from all of the pressures and the disappointments and the sorrows of our earthly lives, we should be a people who are just excited, just thinking about that imminent day that is going to come. It should be like, like, like a kid. Like if I told my son, we're going to Disneyland. That makes my kids really, really happy. And if I was tucking, let's say, Jason at, into bed at night, and he said, Dad, when are we going to Disneyland? And I said to him, the next time I walk in this room, we're going to Disneyland. And I walk out and shut off the light. Jace would all night just be tossing and turning, just thinking about Pirates of the Caribbean, Cars Land, Space Mountain. Actually, he'd think about how scary Space Mountain is, but he'd be thinking about all the things at Disneyland. He probably wouldn't sleep. If he did, he'd be dreaming about Disneyland because, after all, it's the happiest place on earth. But even though Disneyland might rightly be called the happiest place on earth, it is nothing in comparison to the new heavens and the new earth. And so we have this promise that when Jesus comes back, we are going to be with him in the new heavens and the new earth for all time where there is no more sorrow, no more sadness, no more disappointment, no more letdown. It's just joy forevermore. This should draw our hearts upward to think about Christ and to think about heavenly things. Jesus assured his followers that he was going to heaven to prepare a place for them. John 14, 3 said, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. Here's what 1 Corinthians 2.9 says for those of us that are believers. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. We just have no idea. We just know it's going to be amazing. And so, if you then have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Please pray with me.